0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. Today, our topic is mental health. Uh, with me in the studio is co host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have one guest with us today. Denny Morrison is the chief executive officer of the Center for Behavioral Health, which is uh, based here in Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855 0811 or 877 285 9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Mary Catherine.
1: Hello. Good
0: to see you. It's such a beautiful day. outside, (laughs) Denny, it's kind of a depressing day. I was just going to say, I got
1: a good idea. Let's sit around and talk about depression.
0: (laughs) 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 This is the kind of day for it. Yeah. Right. Denny, it's good to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. All right. We have a lot of things we can talk about today with mental health. It's such a broad... A broad issue. I, I was going to start with one question, which I told you about, but I think I'll go back to talking about the Center for Behavioral mm-hmm. Health, because I think it's good to introduce mm-hmm. you know, what the organization is and how widespread it is, because it's based here. Your office is in Bloomington.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Our main office is. Mm-hmm. But it, but uh, it's not just a Monroe County office. No, not at all. Well, The Center for Behavioral Health was founded in 1969 as part of the uh, through the Kennedy administration's work to develop a system of mental health facilities that could provide treatments for people without, their regard, without regard to their ability to pay. And as a result of that legislation, every square inch of the United States is now covered by a community mental health center that provides those services. However, since that time, the funding systems have changed them radically, and we 'll talk we can talk about that later but cbh is um, is based in Bloomington, but we serve our primary service area is uh, Monroe, Morgan, Lawrence, and Owen counties, and we see over about over nine thousand people a year. We have about um, uh, uh, 275 employees, um, two hundred of which are clinical staff uh, budget is about twenty million dollars a year. We we are a private uh, nonprofit entity, but um, I really don't like that term. Frankly, I like tax tax exempt, and uh, uh, but we do pay taxes. We pay about four million dollars in payroll taxes to the communities where we serve. So, as a as a business, I mean, forget about what we do. We're, We're a fairly large contributor to the local economy as well as a large service provider in this area.
0: When you say that uh, every square inch is covered by um, a a center for behavioral health or a center that would would offer these kind of services, um, you handle four counties, Mm -hmm. um, but there are – you must have counterparts in Mm -hmm. the other counties that WFIU covers. Mm -hmm. So so anybody out there, if you have a question about mental health in uh, in your area, I'm sure that Denny can
2: answer that question too. Yeah, there are 30 about 30 mental health centers in Indiana, mm-hmm. and uh, every state has implemented their system differently, but just in most cases... The centers that uh, provide this kind of services are all private nonprofit businesses. Okay, so the,
0: you know the Center for Behavioral Health is is sort of a, a lot longer name than the old name, which was the Mental Health Center. So, could you talk about the the change from just talking or, or being labeled as a Mental Health Center mm-hmm. to a Center for Behavioral Health?
2: Yeah, actually, this name is actually shorter than our our original name. <laughs> our original name was South Central Community Mental Health Centers Inc. Oh, okay. Which, which is you know it takes about two pages to mm-hmm. get across, but the the worst part was that that the acronym for that was SICKMUCK, <laughs> not really the kind of thing we weren't rolling off the tongue. But, but I think one of the things that changed uh, – that, uh, that the reason that we decided to change the name was because behavioral health care, that term is, is uh, a term that some people aren't familiar with and it really is just an encompassing term that includes mental health, substance abuse, psychiatry, all under one moniker. And that, so that's why, one of the reasons why we changed the name and make it a little more kind of easy and more contemporary name. Mm-hmm. But we provide those services. Mental health and substance abuse services are our kind of core business. Uh-huh. In, go, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna, are, are, do you offer inpatient and outpatient services or strictly outpatient?
2: We do all outpatient. Uh, we do everything up to but not including inpatient. Most of the inpatient services, well, all of the inpatient services that we provide, we contract with either Bloomington Hospital or Meadows. I see. Okay.
0: Now, um, mental health is sort of a, a term that, that can be stigmatized mm-hmm. and uh, I, I would like for you to address that mm-hmm. um, because one person's mental health um, issue is not necessarily the same as any other hundred people. I mean, it's such a wide range.
2: Right. It's actually easy to – it seems like a black box too I think to a lot of people and, and it can most easily be thought of. As falling into three categories, there are acute disorders that we treat, that are and for us that would be depression, anxiety, and these are the problems that uh, that uh, a person ought to reasonably expect that they would end treatment and end up better than they were when they walked in. Um, then in the the analog on for uh, medical care would be like a broken arm. If you go to your doctor for the treatment of a sinus infection, that's going to be you know you're going to get a course of treatment and it's going to end and you're going to be better at the end of that, presumably. Are, the second category are those uh, serious mental illnesses, which are more chronic in nature. And those for us are schizophrenia, manic depressive illness. And these are illnesses for which there is no cure. Nobody mm-hmm. knows how to treat these. But we can bring people up to the highest functional level possible for them. And those are like on the medical side, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, that, for which we don't have the technology yet to fix the problem. But in fact, we can bring people up with the right treatments and the right supports to the highest level of functioning. And in the third general category, of course, is substance abuse, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. When you talk
0: about the highest, the uh, highest level of mm-hmm. functioning, um, you mean, I, I believe that I mean people would be able to to work, to have a family, to be uh, participating in society, so that. Other people would have no idea, mm-hmm. basically, that they had a mental illness they were
2: having That's treatment. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And as a, a Charlie Curry, who's head of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the federal government, says, you know, what, what people with serious mental illnesses want is what all of us want. We want a home, a job, and a date on Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. So how, how would you characterize um, the feeling about, about mental illness and mm-hmm. the stigma about it? Mm-hmm. Is, is, are we getting— a lot better. Are we getting a little bit better in terms of a society and, and um, not stigmatizing and not not stereotyping?
2: We're getting a little better, I think. Okay. Uh, I don't think we're getting a lot better. And it's and it's and uh, uh, trying not to mention names, but some uh, Hollywood celebrities haven't done much <laughs> to help that uh, cause. And uh, uh, we'll just let you. Imagine who those might be, and kind of cruise to your own conclusion. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but generally, society has uh, gotten a more positive regard for people who have have mental illnesses, and that's largely due to the fact that more people are willing to say, "I was depressed," "I've had this problem." I don't know if you saw seen on TV. um, Mike Wallace, you know, does uh, does public service announcements for depression treatment. says, I was depressed, it's treatable, and it is. The, in fact, um, it's, it's very – the treatments are actually very effective um, more so than people would think. But you think about it. I mean even now today, you know, let, let me let, let me just kind of do a little experiment here. You know, you, you, every one of us has probably either heard or, or uh, told a joke that started with two drunks are walking down the street and – or two crazy people are talking to each other and – or two retarded people are, but we would, you never hear something that says two breast cancer survivors were talking, and you don't hear two diabetics were one time talking. And the reason is, there's there's this we, these are all brain diseases that we deal with in our in my industry, and people don't think of them that way. They think of them as failings of character, or somehow that this person, if they just get their act together, they would they this wouldn't be a problem. And that's ob, that is just not the case. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Our phone number, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, outside of the Bloomington calling area. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. Denny Morrison is our guest. He's the chief executive officer of the Center for Behavioral Health, which is based here in Bloomington.
1: In the... Other parts of the health care system right now, the, the big thing seems to be preventative care. Um, is mm-hmm. mental health taking that approach now too?
2: They used to, and, uh, but that was the first place where funding was cut for mm-hmm. our areas. There, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things that we can do in terms of preventative care, particularly with kids. But um, there's just not – people just don't want to support it. And, and it's unfortunate because I think there's this um, misguided perception that, that the treatments that we provide – are kind of soft and it's talk therapy and there's no data behind it. The reality is that that, that, is, that is just not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, For example, when you look at the, the treatments that we provide, the, um, the data is so strong in terms of what works and what doesn't work in our industry um, that we can say, for example, that uh, treatment for depression or treatment for panic disorder uh, are about eight times more effective than the treatment of using chemotherapy to treat breast cancer. We know that that the treatment that those those same um, behavioral health care treatments are about five times more effective than uh, aortocar cortical bypass surgery for uh, people with heart disease. We know that it's that those treatments are twice as effective as angioplasty for medical patients. But people would never guess that. You know, when Mm -hmm. you say what's more effective, they say, well, all of those medical care problems. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's about uh, ten times more effective. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody take an aspirin a day for your heart that it's good for you? That's, and it is oh, yes. a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> depression and, and the treatments that we have for depression and other disorders are ten times more effective than that intervention. Mm-hmm. So, And we've got the data to prove it. Mm-hmm. And, and people don't realize that.
0: Hmm. Okay, we have a call. So let's go to William first. William? Hello, William. Yes. Go ahead.
3: Um, I was sent to the um, the... Mental health center? Center Mm -hmm. by the uh, the South Central people. Um, And it it, it was the biggest waste of my money that I've ever run into. Um, It it was uh, on my decision to come and try to get help from you I talked to the um, counselors at the beginning and said I don't think you're going to be able to do anything for me and uh, they said well stick it out um, and we will make sure that your insurance covers it and then they put me into IOP and uh, they said, stick it out, don't worry, um, your insurance will cover it. And then all of a sudden the bills started coming. Um, I, I, everybody I have talked to there has said the bills come. The bills don't make any sense. They are absolutely useless. They
0: don't do anything for anybody. Okay, William, I want to I cut you off because obviously you have a, an individual concern and complaint with, uh, with Denny in the center, so I, I think that this is probably not the place to take that up. Clearly, you're not a fan and you don't think that they helped you, and, and I think you've, got, you've made your point. I,
3: I, I, I went through all sorts of different um, treatments. And I was unhelped.
0: Okay. Well, I,
3: absolutely unhelped by I'm, anything that you did at the okay. Center we're, for
2: your we're, we're we're, Help. We're going to cut you off now, William, because you've made your point. William, I'm sorry that 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 you had that experience. The the truth is that. When you go to any healthcare care provider, nobody has a 100 percent track record. And um, but I would put up our treatments to anybody's, literally anybody's. Um, there, there was kind of an implication there that I wanted did want to address. And that is somehow you were surprised that you got a bill from us. Now, the bill may have been confusing, and I apologize for that. But the reality is that people do have to pay for their care. There is, nobody is paying for that anymore, and that is one of the challenges that we have to face. Uh, there is a community expectation that we will be the safety net provider for folks for, and provide services. And in the past, we never had to ask people to pay for that. The reason that William and others have to now pay for those services is because that money has dried up significantly. Um, we haven't had a rate increase from Medicaid since 1991. When, the feds, when our funding changed from the federal government to a block grant system, 25 percent it was cut right off the top. Last year we took a 7 percent cut from the Department of Mental Health. We're taking another 7 percent cut this year. So ultimately we do have to ask people to pay. And, and those people who do have insurance, we ha- they have to pay. Uh, more, We have some scholarships available, but it isn't like the good old days where you could just walk in and we wouldn't even ask you for a copayment at all because somebody else was paying the bill for you. Mm-hmm. Those days are gone. Is
1: there a sliding fee scale available? There,
2: we have scholarships now and we can provide services for people. But nobody uh, – if a person has insurance, we, are re- we have to bill them full fee because we can't offer sliding fee scales to people who have insurance and that's mm-hmm. one of the challenges. The biggest problem we have these days financially is really with the folks who have who are working but may have poor or no insurance mm-hmm. and the, at, like a lot of places they are the ones who are really getting getting squeezed. It's you know in that middle. That if you have more if you make more or you have better insurance it's easy to pay for or if you make less you're probably eligible for Medicaid or another payer that will subsidize it. But there's a lot more people in that middle area that, mm-hmm. that aren't being served. And, and William, I'm, I'm sorry for your that you weren't satisfied.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I appreciate that call, but we're going to move on to Sarah. Sarah?
4: I have a kind of more general question, although I agree that the bills are very difficult to understand.
0: They are from um, my doctors, too. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, we we have a family member who's on Medicaid, and is indeed told no you don't have to pay anything medicaid pays at all and the bills do come uh as if he had to pay that's very confusing for someone especially who is already struggling with illness uh but that wasn't my question my question was uh can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the hospital and the and the center uh if someone is is um uh getting outpatient care, such as you provide, and then needs to go into the hospital, uh, and then eventually is able to go back to outpatient care. How are these decisions made, and how, what is the relationship of the center currently with the hospital uh, psychiatrist, for instance? Thank you.
2: Okay. Well, the, uh, there is, uh, in some, some places in the community, there's a misconception that we are part of Bloomington Hospital, and we're not. We're a completely independent ent- entity. And as I mentioned earlier we don 't do inpatient care the, the hospital does that so though once we, once someone gets transferred to the inpatient unit it is it is the Bloomington Hospital psychiatry staff that manages that care and what we try to do is facilitate the transition between in and out of the hospital so it 's a, it's a, a collaboration in that regard, but our our services are exclusively outpatient Theirs are exclusively inpatient that I
4: understand uh, my question is. How how does the collaboration work when when transfer goes goes in
2: and out? Oh, I see. I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. The, the, it, it, there are uh, we have meetings with uh, the, the psychiatry staff. Some of our staff are actually on those units to help coordinate the transition out. A lot of it depends on the type of problem that the person is experiencing in terms of what levels of care they're going to need when they get out. For example, we have a an, a facility called a transitional care uh, facility or TCF, for people who have serious mental illnesses or addictions, that is um, kind of an outpatient-inpatient unit it's, that's 20, staffed 24 hours a day with uh, nursing care. Now, most people who are coming out of the hospital with um, you know, problems other than a serious mental illness would probably not access that service. They would be given an appointment for an outpatient follow-up of some kind. So it de- really depends on the type of problem. But the way the facilitation goes is really kind of almost individualized in terms of the, the transition from into and out of the hospital.
4: Thank you. All right, Sarah. Thanks yeah. a lot
2: for the call. 855
0: in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And the email address is noon at indiana.edu. We have a couple more phone calls. Let's go to Lee. Lee?
5: Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Mr. Morrison, do you offer residential facilities for the mentally ill clients? And if so, how many? And how are they supervised? And I'll hang up and listen on the radio. Thank okay.
2: you. Okay. Yeah, it's hard to get that feedback, isn't it, Lee? Um, the, yeah, we do, actually. Uh, the center offers a, a very broad uh, continuum, in fact, uh, arguably one of the largest continuos of um, of residential services for people with serious mental illnesses. Um, uh, Bob and Mary Catherine have mentioned that the the center is based in Bloomington, and that's true, and our main offices are at 2nd and Rogers. But the reality is we have about 24 physical structures that we own, manage, run, And most of those uh, really are housing or or, or, um, um, supported living arrangements. We've been um, fortunate to be able to build four apartment complexes in in, uh, uh, several of the communities, two in Morgan County, one here in Monroe County, and one down in Lawrence County. Specifically for low-income people with serious mental illnesses, um, we did those through a variety of grants and funding systems. We also have group homes and the transitional care facility. Supervision for those uh, units uh, depends on the on the level of, of um, uh, services. the 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 uh, The apartment complexes, for example. There is an on-site manager, but that's just a person who's there like any manager of an apartment complex. All the way through, uh, the continuum goes all the way through to that transitional care facility where we have nurses and uh, medical professionals on staff 24 hours a day. In almost all of the residential facilities, there is someone physically present 24 hours a day, but there is more or less programming in terms of clinical interventions because part of it is to be able, the goal is to be able to move people up and down that continuum. The more autonomous they get, the more independent they get, the less they need our oversight.
0: Okay, those facilities are in all your counties. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, one more call. We've got Rob on the line. Rob.
2: Yes. Um, I've had problems with billing with that also. Um, let's see. The Sounds th- like we th- need to work on our billing system, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
3: I I went in and I under my insurance and under our agreement and stuff, it said that I'd be uh, I was responsible for twenty percent. And I end up getting have to pay it all in full. I tried getting a hold of my insurance company a couple times, and it, it's something to do with billing how everything was, I
2: guess, rated. How everything was what? I'm sorry. Uh, not how it was like coded is what they said. So I, I didn't want to mess around the whole time. So I yeah. just went ahead and paid the bill. Yeah. The um the we this is for what it's worth. This is the problems that we're hearing about billing. And the interaction with insurance companies is not just unique to our organization. It just happens we're on <laughs> the one on the microphone right now but um the the pro- the dealing with insurance companies has gotten horrendously difficult because of pre authorizations and how much care will they uh, certify and making sure that all the information is correct and not to say that we're without fault in some cases, but it has gotten incredibly complex in terms of our ability to deal with uh those kind of things and well, to be fair, too, a lot of insurance companies will tell you that they have a, a certain benefit package, but when we go to, to access that, uh, all of a sudden things are different. Mm-hmm. And so they set an expectation with people who come to see us that oftentimes we can't deliver on. and through no fault of our own. Now, again, there may be things we need to do. I, I, for what it's worth, the last couple of callers have said how, how confusing our bills are. And we, we know that. We've, we've grappled with that for quite a while now. And as Bob mentioned, you know, his doctor bills and our hospital bills, I, you know there are businesses that do nothing but help people interpret those things to make sure there aren't errors on them. And so um, it's just, it's due to the complexity of the, of the, uh, what people use, loosely call the healthcare system in the United States of which there really isn't one
0: well we had Rob Stone here Dr Rob Stone mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago and, and uh, we talked a little bit about the complexity of the healthcare mm-hmm. system it is it is amazing and, and uh, you know as a consumer of healthcare these days you know i get a lot of bills too and and they are they are murder. Yep.
1: Yeah, they're painfully difficult to navigate and I, I yeah. one of my college jobs was uh, filing filing care claims and and so then taking that knowledge I I can feel I can usually figure these things out but I think about people who haven't had that experience and uh, you know I think gosh, it's just awful or you know if you haven't been exposed to the lingo and you don't know a CPT code from your elbow it's really hard.
2: Yeah. And if yeah. you look at look at the uh, look at the, the most recent Medicare debacle. Oh. I mean, that was a, that was a okay. bad plan, poorly implemented, in my opinion. And painful. It's been, it's been nothing but a headache for most of us in the healthcare side.
0: Right. It's okay. Painful. We're going to take a break on that uh, happy news about
2: yeah. wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: complex health care bills. Uh, we're talking with Denny Morrison today, the uh, chief executive officer of the Center for Behavioral Health. Uh, we're talking about all sorts of issues in the mental health field. Uh, we're, you're listening to Noon Edition, uh, of course, and we'll be right
5: back. www.southdunnstreet.info at area theaters its first stages the results of the new play development workshop series at the Bloomington Playwrights Project and the Cardinal Theater Company with performances tonight and Saturday as well Bloomington High School South has Bye Bye Birdie Bloomington High School North West Side Story at the Community Theater of Terre Haute it's a gentle comedy from Argentina called Lost Embrace There's a museum grand opening Saturday from 10 to 4, and that takes place at the Putnam County Museum on Jackson Street in Greencastle. And Saturday, there's the East Fest all around the Kroger East parking lot in Bloomington. More about all of these and many others on our website, wfiu.indiana.edu.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald-Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have Denny Morrison with us today. Denny is the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for Behavioral Health. We're talking about mental health issues. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu let's,
1: um, let's kind of do a walkthrough uh, for somebody who may themselves be suffering from depression or have somebody in their family they think is suffering from depression and, and needs to get some help mm-hmm. um, would they just walk into your offices at second and Rogers or, or how would that how would that go?
2: They can they can do that they can call us uh, we have a 24hour crisis line that's available the numbers in, in the phone book. Um, the the way that it would work though is someone who's experiencing um, a problem like depression or anxiety disorders, which is in that category of acute problems that we described. And some 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 types of depression are very long lasting and mm-hmm. very hard to treat. But the reality, what the what the data shows and what our data shows is that about people uh, who who go through what we call an evidence based treatment that is a treatment that's based in research. Um, ha- about 70% of those people will get better at the end of treatment, and the treatment is usually about 12 to 16 weeks, in that, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. These may or may not involve medications, most often do not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's kind of uh, unfortunate is that the, the decisions or the request for what kind of treatments people get when they come to us, uh, as, as is true for other medical providers, is largely being driven now by direct-to-consumer marketing on, the, on mm-hmm. the television. So the drug companies, the drug companies, and and nothing of what they're saying is inaccurate. They're not just they're just not painting the whole picture. For example, we have treatments that are more effective than medications for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. But you're not going to hear about those because there's no medications involved. Mm-hmm. They're, and again, they're not they're not they're not misrepresenting anything. But there's nobody to advocate for a non-pharmaceutical intervention, mm-hmm. and we that's where we we will use medications or some for some problems we will, we will choose not to. So, um, so anyway, someone would come into us. We would assess them. We'd do uh, an, an assessment on their uh, of their status. What kind of treatments do they need? If it's uh, depression, we would uh, most likely put them into a, a depression treatment protocol that is specific for depression, um, and the, and the goal of which is to get out of treatment. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of this is we want you know this is not to be you know have a, a professional friend for the rest of your life. The goal is to end this and feel mm-hmm. better. That's mm-hmm. what we're all about.
1: So they'd be linked with a therapist, mm-hmm. and yep. the treatment would be determined by the therapist. Yep. And yep. On, on it goes. Okay. Yep,
2: yep. I mean, we can do things in individual or in group therapy. And interestingly, a lot of people have misconceptions that you know what group therapy? What's that? Just a bunch of people talking. The reality is that for most problems, group therapy is equally effective as individual therapy, huh. and usually, usually less expensive.
0: How many people would be in a group? Yeah, six to eight. Six to eight. It's
2: eight, kind of like the sweet spot. You know, beyond yeah. that, it starts getting unwieldy and. Um, but that's generally the way the, the way it works. There are some groups that will be larger because they're more psychoeducational in nature. Mm-hmm. For a lot of our chemical dependency treatment, it's it's a matter of dispensing information about the disease of alcoholism, for example, so that you can have a larger number in there. But for a therapy group, it's in the seven, eight range. OK. Uh,
0: we have several calls
2: online.
3: Wow.
0: So let's go to Chris?
2: Chris?
3: yeah um, I would like to ask a question about the addictions program.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I know until very recently uh, the addiction program at CBH didn't offer um, a number of pharmaceutical options uh, for people who were uh, trying to recover from from serious addictions, namely uh, opiates such as heroin. They didn't offer a lot of the pharmaceutical options, which are kind of accepted as the uh, the main lines of treatment nowadays, especially at the more progressive uh, treatment centers. Uh, namely Suboxone, Subutex, and even Methadone, um, some ph- pharmaceutical options that can make it a lot easier and uh, really kind of coax the person through um, through the process. And, and it's now kind of the, uh, the, like I said, the accepted line on recovery there. I wondered if you had any plans to start offering those um, or a reason why you didn't.
2: Yeah. Uh, let's break those into two two categories. The uh, methadone maintenance is is, uh, is a, it is truly a, a replacement program, and the we we don't do that, and probably will not be doing it. Other, I'm not. I wouldn't say never, but right now we don't have any plans to do that. The other medication interventions that you mentioned are relatively new to the market, and we are looking at those. Those are those can be uh, useful adjuncts to treatment for um, for addiction. So, yeah, ab- absolutely, those are um, bona fide um, interventions, and we are looking at them.
6: Okay, thank you very much. All uh-huh.
2: right, Chris, thanks for the call. Let's go to Mandy next. Mandy?
6: Hi. Um, I was wondering, I was diagnosed with schizophrenic three years ago, mm-hmm. and I was wondering what I could do to help, if, if your center has any outreach programs, for people to speak to the public about mental illness and educate them, because I think that's a huge problem. Um, people's attitudes towards mental
2: illness. I couldn't agree more, Mandy. Um, CBH doesn't do uh, much in the way of outreach ourselves, but what we do is partner with folks who do do that. The uh, Mental Health Alliance here in uh, Bloomington and in other counties uh, does a lot of that work, as well as the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. Both of those would be good resources for you if you're interested in doing that, and we would welcome you um, to do that.
6: Yeah, I would love to because I was in class the other day, a psychology class, and someone cracked a joke. Right. It was kind of offending. <laughs> uh,
2: absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you heard our original comment uh, earlier in the. Yeah,
6: I did. That's why that I true? wondered if
2: you're. Would you Would you Would you agree with that, that? That people are more willing to crack a joke about somebody who's got a mental illness than if you have got breast cancer.
6: Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, because mental illness these days. It's more probably common than being born with a retard agent.
2: Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about the prevalence there, but the reality is, no, it's, it's, it's a it's a brain disease. You know, that's the that's the yeah. thing that people don't realize. This is not this has nothing to do with the way you were raised or your upbringing or any of that kind of stuff. It's all about brain chemistry. Right,
6: right. right. Well, thank you. You bet. What was the, I'm sorry. What was the name of the National Health Alliance?
2: National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, and AMI. Uh, okay. and, uh, and the Mental Health uh, Alliance here in Bloomington.
6: Okay,
0: thank you. All you right, bet. Mandy. Thanks a lot for the call. Um 811 is our number, Eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington area and noon at indiana.edu. Um, I hope we get back to a question. Mandy seemed like a very young person, and I do want to talk about mental health among younger individuals. Uh, but we do have more phone calls, so we'll get to them first. We'll get to their questions before our questions. So okay. Con- Connie, go ahead.
7: Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Mr. Morrison just uh, did allude to uh, my concern that I'm going to raise uh, when you mentioned the Mental Health Alliance. Uh, I'm happy to hear other organizations in the community uh, being mentioned on the program. Um, uh, So my, my concern is not for the center or for anything that Denny has said, and he's done an excellent job, but I'm afraid your listen- listeners are being left with the impression that the Center for Behavioral Health is the only mental health provider in the community. Oh. And when I first um, uh, heard about the program, I thought, oh, good, <laughs> I'm going to hear about uh, the, the uh, large variety of providers that there, they, that there are. Certainly, the Mental Health Alliance, whose phone number is three three nine one five five one, and is connected with Family Service Association, is one of those uh, organizations, and uh, there are many others. So, I want your readers to, your listeners, to know that. That's that
2: a, that's an know? excellent point. I think that actually, just as a suggestion, that might be a topic for another discussion right. where we could talk about. Just a whole panoply of services that are available throughout the community. Mm -hmm. CBH just happens to be probably the largest provider, but we're certainly not the only one. That's That's exactly right. Thank you, Connie. Uh
7: Uh-huh. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot for the call, Connie. She has a good point. We just can't always have all the guests we'd like to get on the program. But uh, we'll go next to Ken. Ken?
3: Well, I, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what your position is as CEO. Are you more... Involved with the fundraising, or do you have administrative responsibilities for the, you know, the people on staff at the center, and also what are controls that the center uses to judge performance of uh, your therapist and your medical staff?
0: Okay, okay, Ken. We're going to cut you off because uh, our connection was pretty
2: bad, but I hope you'll be able to listen. Okay. Uh, uh, if, I, if I understood you correctly, Ken, you were wondering about what my job was, and uh, there are a lot of people at my place who wonder what that is, <laughs> um, and what controls we have uh, in per- terms of performance reviews for employees, if I heard that correctly. And so I'm going to presume that's the, that was what you asked. Uh, my job, I'm the, ch- I'm the chief executive. I, I was a, I'm a psychologist by training. I was trained uh, and did clinical work for a long time, but I haven't for the past about oh, 12 or 15 years. I've been in management since that time and been here in Bloomington for the past 11 years as the chief executive of this facility. Uh, I, don't, I don't do any direct clinical work anymore. Um, I have 280 people, 200 of whom are clinicians, who that's, that's their jobs. Uh, my job is um, actually much broader than that, and we can talk about specifics of that. To get to the second part of your question, though, um, we have a regular performance review system just like any other business has. Uh, all of our clinicians have to be credentialed. Uh, they have to have certain uh, requirements in terms of uh, state licensure and uh, independent licensure uh, if that's appropriate. And also they, uh, they get supervised internally by other senior clinical staff. So we can go – there's lots to that, both group and individual supervision that occurs for all of our clinical folks. But they have to be – the first thing is that they have to be credentialed um, through a standardized system through the state.
0: All right. And I should mention, Denny has a PhD, so it is Dr. Morrison, too. And people have been very polite to call you Mr. Morrison, but because I hadn't given you the proper introduction. I've been called worse. (laughs) All right. right. We're going to go to George next. George?
3: Hello? Hello, George. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Um, My son uh, is in college out of state, and he's been diagnosed as bipolar. And um, last year, because the the IU psychiatric management health insurance thing didn't cover doctors <laughs> where he is. We had to pay thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of dollars for his treatment. So I switched over this year to Magellan Network, and now I'm told that no one in Bloomington accepts Magellan Network. And I'm just wondering, first of all, does your group uh, work with people with bipolar disorder, and do you accept Magellan, the Magellan Network insurance?
2: Um, we We do a lot of work with bipolar disorder, and no we don 't take magellan we were uh, We were on their panel until a couple of years ago, and the um, The requirements that they had. Uh, of us were onerous, and their their rates were unacceptable to us. Uh, we can see people who are on the Magellan panel as an out of panel provider though so uh, while, while you, want, you can since there is there aren 't very many other Magellan providers because a lot of providers uh, had the same experience with that particular company and yeah. just incidentally, I used to work for them <laughs> a long time ago, so uh, I know that system fairly well, but they We, as an organization, we just, you know, we couldn't afford to uh, be paid ninety cents for something that cost us a dollar to deliver, and so we had to had to end that relationship. But we can see, we can could still see your son uh, as an out-of-network provider, as can uh, providers in the community wherever he is going to college.
3: Yeah. Well, but it's it's so expensive when you're doing it out of network. I I understand that.
2: I understand that, and and I would the the thing I would do if. Depend, you, you know, a lot of times it's easy to blame the managed care company in this case or an insurance company, but you've got to remember that they are just fiscal intermediaries to a business who has hired them to do a particular job for them. And so if you want to raise a complaint about the lack of accessibility or the, just even the quality of services, you need to go to your employer or whoever, right. whoever it is that, that is, has, has contracted with them because they're just doing whatever the employer has said we want to buy. Yeah, okay. All right, thank you. You're welcome.
0: All right, George. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and noon at indiana.edu.
1: And I have an email that came in. It asks, "Is your center able to help the families who live with people with mental illnesses who refuse to sign any release for their care information to be shared?" My late husband had a very paranoid mindset, and it was perfectly horrid trying to even find out what medication he had been prescribed. Nobody would even say what was wrong with him or what I. I was supposed to do to be of assistance in his care. What do your people do in such circumstances, which I am sure are not that rare?
2: Uh, absolutely, they're not rare. Uh, and that's, that's one of the binds that we find ourselves in in our industry. Um, our, our confidentiality restrictions are much higher than the medical profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have heard of a, of a thing called HIPAA mm-hmm. that was implemented, and that caused lots of distress uh, among medical providers. HIPAA was a non-issue for us because our confidentiality requirements are already higher than HIPAA anyway. So what uh, what our, our email uh, correspondent has uh, pointed out is exactly a problem that a lot of family members have when they want to work with when – their, when their loved one is, is in treatment with us. Mm-hmm. Now the, – the, and so there's – the short version is we cannot release that information. We can't even acknowledge that they're in treatment even though it seems kind of convoluted that they brought them. But we can't say, yeah, they're in treatment here or them, those kind of things. However – one of the things, and I always, always want families to know this. There are two things I want to leave with our email writer. One is that we can always listen. We can always take information from people no matter what. So if someone says, you know, I'm going to call the, my, my, uh, the therapist of my loved one, the therapist can, can take the call and can say, I can listen to whatever you think is important, but we can't dispense information without the person actually signing a release to that person, which can be withdrawn. So uh, that's a problem. The other though thing is for this particular person, if you have, and for any of our listeners, if the if you have a loved one who has who is uh, grappling with a serious mental illness, do get in touch with NAMI, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill. They have a wonderful support program for family members of the mentally ill, and uh, we we actually have a, an advisory group that has been most helpful to us recently to help us. Identify ways that we can be more effective with families, given these restrictions of confidentiality and other things.
1: Which brings up another topic. Um, you were kind enough to to provide us with some some ideas for today's show, and and you mentioned electronic health records, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in that, and and uh, confidentiality issues regarding that. So mm-hmm. if you could talk about that a little bit,
2: you bet. Um, uh, Electronic health records are really getting more and more popular uh, of late. Uh, CBH has been paperless for the past three years. Um, Of all the organizations nationally, of all the healthcare organizations nationally that have ever tried to implement an electronic health record, we've been told we're in the top 2% of of that population. Uh, Last year, we were a finalist for an award given by the uh, Health Information Management Systems Society called the Davies Award. Um, So this is something we have done a lot with. Um, one of the kind of the general um, concerns that people have is what about confidentiality in an electronic record? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you electronic rec- records that are held electronically are far more confidential than paper records. If you've ever walked into a hospital – and that was not electronic, you'll see paper charts that all you had to do is put on a white coat and pick up and walk down the hallway, and, and, it, and you would have it. You would have the record. Uh, it was the same. Same was true for us when we were paperless, that you could, we would have clinicians who would have several charts in their office. Mm-hmm. They might leave to go to the bathroom, forget to leave their door unlocked, three charts sitting there that somebody could walk in and pick up. Uh, if somebody really wanted to get a chart, a paper chart from our organization, they could drive a car through the front window, hold a gun on somebody, and they would get the chart. Electronically, though, this, these are all secure. These are using the same standards that, that um, inter- banks use for international transactions of data that, for millions and billions of dollars. So the, the, standard, for or the standard for security, not confidentiality, is, is better for electronic records. And that's a lot of people don't, don't think that, but it, it, really, it really is true. The big advantage, though, for electronic health records, though, I mean, there are several, but um, the main one is that you now have a legible record. If anyone who's worked in healthcare knows, if you go look at your doctor's notes or you look at the hospital notes, it is scary the way they're because you can't read them, and there's numerous medical errors, there's numerous numerous uh, drug errors that occur because of that. And when we went when we went live about six months after we went live with our electronic record, um, we asked our middle managers, you know, because there's always those startup problems. But I said, was it worth it? Should we have done this at all? And their response was immediate and unanimous. They said, absolutely. And the main payoff initially was, I can now read what was been written. So our error rate has gone to next to zero. Um, all of our medications are electronic. Uh, the system will do drug-drug interaction checking so that if you're on two medications and there's a contraindication, it flags a warning to the physician doing that prescription. So there's lots of advantages of doing that. Bloomington Hospital, as you know, has started down that path. Theirs is a, they're a larger organization than ours, and they anticipate five years to, to get theirs implemented, and we're working with them to help help them. I mean, they don't need our help, but we're happy mm-hmm. to, you know, since we've been down this road for right. three years, we're glad, glad to collaborate with them. Okay. All right, we have a phone
0: call. Let's go to Terrell. Terrell?
7: Hello. Hello. Yes. Uh, you uh, mentioned that you're allowed to take information about patients, and I really think the families are often the very, should be the front line because they live with these people every day and see the reactions of their medications and so on. I agree. But my experience has been if you call over there, they immediately say, it's confidential, we can't talk about it. In fact, uh, you're often treated quite rudely.
2: Yeah, we this is the, the we have gotten that feedback before, and it, it does We're not meaning to be rude. It's I think we get some overzealous folks who know this confidentiality stuff so well that they're scared of, of even trying to even look like they're dispensing any, any information. We have really worked hard as as a result of this uh, work we did with the family advisory board to help clean that up. But we're now we now actively ask for. Uh, family members to give us information. We want to know that stuff because you are the front lines. You do know that stuff, and if if you still encounter that, Terrell, call me because we want that to change. We want people to to feel free that they can give us the information, even if their loved one says that we can't talk about it.
7: All right. Okay. I'm glad it's improving.
2: We hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you be the judge of that. All right. All right. Thanks,
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. We have about uh, seven or eight minutes to go. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And noon at indiana.edu. edu. Um, I wanted to ask about about young people in mental health, Denny, because I, I'm under the impression that a lot of a lot of kids who are behavioral problems have behavioral problems in school, um, aren't making their grades for one reason or another, um, acting are acting out a lot, may have a mental health issue that just isn't treated early on. Are you seeing, uh, Would I guess, A, would you react to that, and, and B, are you seeing more young people that are uh, coming to the center? Uh,
2: we are seeing more young people, and that was a concerted uh, effort on our part to, to, to see more young folks. Um, we have a number of programs that we put in place recently, uh, several really neat ones for young uh, pre-adolescent girls, for example, that are group-oriented to build self-esteem and help them kind of get on top of things. Um, we, there's, a, there's a pretty strong correlation between socioeconomic status and difficulty in child rearing. And so th- what we see is um, a lot of these kids are – they are having problems. And, and a lot of times um, parents don't think that – they think it's just, you know, just a kid acting out when in fact there is a true uh, problem there, depression or an anxiety disorder. And uh, obviously sometimes there's ADHD or um, oppositional defiant disorder which is a variant – um, and those, uh, but, but um, and that's, that's, I think when you, when you started that question, I figured that we were going to go down the uh, ADHD, Ritalin path, and there certainly is overuse of that by, in some quarters. But those are the, those problems um, numerically are much smaller than the other problems of depression and stuff in, mm-hmm. in younger kids. And that's, we can treat that stuff. I mean, we can really do that with with or without pharmaceuticals. I mean, we can treat those those uh, those problems and have some success with that, those kids.
0: I think a, a natural follow up here would be for you to give your take on the need for a juvenile treatment center here in Bloomington or Mineral County. Mm-hmm.
2: We've been um, working pretty closely with uh, Judge Welsh and um, the folks involved in that. And and as, as you if you remember uh, the. Um, We've had numerous studies in this community about this. The most recent one being the Husky Report, and the, the Husky Report um, suggested that that we could do this for something in the neighborhood of eleven point four million dollars, build a kind of all encompassing system to bring kids back to the community and treat them here. And that's the ultimate goal is get kids back into this community. What we proposed was if you if you think about this, um, and that that was kind of the Cadillac model. Um, if you think about it though, and say okay. What would it take to bring back 80 or 90% of those kids as opposed to 100%? Because there's this diminishing return curve that, that happens in just about everything in life, I think, but in, certainly in this case, that, the, that there's the outlier kids who need very specialized treatment. That you, and, and if you build to that, you're talking $11 million. But if you say the bulk of these kids could be treated with some existing resources here in the community. And so we proposed that we use existing resources, including um, the youth shelter under Ron Thompson's direction, That we build a residential facility, which was part of the Husky recommendation, and we contract with Meadows Hospital because they do all the adolescent services here. That those three pieces of that continuum could take care of 80, 85, 90 percent of the kids that are now being placed outside the community. And we believe the lengths of stay would be much shorter because the kids and their parents could be much more actively involved in treatment as opposed to a kid who's placed in La Porte or somewhere else Mm -hmm. where transportation's a, a, a prohibitive factor. Um, Judge Welsh also wants to add to that, and I agree, a a secure detention facility. But that's that's, that's another addition onto it, which would complete the continuum. But uh, of those three, when we looked at that, we could do that for about uh, we propose about about five hundred thousand dollars versus eleven point four million and handle eighty eight 90 percent of the kids. So it, it's that it's that eighty twenty rule again. You know, if you look at look at kind of what can we do for most folks. We can do that a lot cheaper, but if you try to build it for everybody, the, the costs go up exponentially. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Sounds like a, a, a more prudent approach. Well, well one, one, some things. One, one, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some, some people think, yeah. yeah. Okay, we
0: have a phone call. I think uh, Lee is the name, Lee?
8: Uh, Denny. Hi. Hi. This is Lee. Hi, Lee. Um, I want to thank you for letting people know that, uh, there are support services for families available in the community. Uh, the first and third Monday of each uh, month, uh, there is a family support group meetings, uh, sponsored by both NAMI and the Alliance for, for, uh, Mental, the Mental Health Alliance. Uh, and they meet at the first uh, methodist United Methodist Church on Fourth Street across the street from the downtown post office, and they meet at seven o 'clock and Family members um, are encouraged to attend these support group meetings uh, where they can uh, um, g- learn from other people how to handle some of the Crisis situations that that uh, we all encounter. Those of us with fam who are family members of the mentally ill, and then also the uh, Mental Health Alliance does have support group meetings for uh, consumers. They have uh, both a uh, support group meetings for schizophrenics and uh, Schizophrenics Anonymous, it's called, and then also they do have um, um, several different. Uh, Groups that that meet uh, the bipolar group and the depression group, and I uh, just want people to know that this community does have help for them.
2: Great, thanks, Lee. Lee was Lee's on our family advisory committee. Oh, okay, and, uh, has fair. been very very good about. Holding my feet to the
0: fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lee. Thanks a lot for the call. Um, in just a few minutes that we have left, uh, are there particular times of life or times of the year, even when there are, uh, you know, depression is, is more prominent, or there things that people should be looking for if mm-hmm. they're in a family and they've got somebody coming up on a particular life cycle? Or? Yeah. Um,
2: there's we, when I think about what we do. It's it's I think about our services for most folks, not the people who've got serious mental illnesses, but for people for just the general population, I think of us as kind of like the family practitioner for mental health and that, you know, you don't go to your family practitioner when you're 21 because you've got a broken arm. And that, and as a result of that, you'll never see him again, <laughs> ever, yeah. Yeah. because when you're 25, you might some, you know, have a sinus infection. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with us. There are things that happen at different phases of life, uh, sometimes due to life circumstances, deaths of loved ones, changes in life, job losses. Who knows what else? A number of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are phases and there's uh, that that occur mm-hmm. um, within the year. Um, one of the w- we're, there seems that we see a, a pickup right after school starts, and right after the uh, the, fisc- the beginning of the year in January. Mm-hmm. Um, and I there, there's no I don't have any data behind this, but we speculate that that it's like uh, you know a lot of the a lot of there's an influx when school starts because kids get identified as having problems that were prior to that over the summer not being identified. And also the parents said if I can just get through the summer,
4: <laughs> and, uh, then I'm
2: going to get some help. And I think the same thing happens with the holidays. I think you know, people kind of struggle through. They're not doing well. St- holidays are stressful times. January comes along. I've got to get some help.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And we are out of time. But uh, I want to thank you very thank much, you. Denny. Denny Morrison has been here, the chief executive officer for the Center for Behavioral Health. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Will Murphy, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
5: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald-Times.